really enjoy this God of the underdogs. Um, cause we're going through, a lot of these have been Old Testament stories that maybe we don't normally preach about. The, the New Testament gets a lot of the love, but, but, uh, to go through these stories and to be able to tell stories. Uh, oh yeah, middle schooler. Wow, we got a crew of middle schoolers. Go to Firestarters, have a great time. Thank you, Lily. Um, so, um, so we are going through this, this series and, and I love that these are stories because I love telling stories. And, uh, and to be honest, stories are great because they connect with us so well. They go down to our bones. We can remember stories really well. We, I think most of us can remember a lot of the fairy tales we were told as children. You know, all those things. Jesus told stories. Is in, they were called parables because I think it's a way that theology just gets tied to us. It's a great way to express theology, a great way to understand God. And so um, this has just been a fantastic series. Once again, we're going to be in the Old Testament. But I think I'm going to be telling you a story... And we're going to be looking at a, the story of someone that my bet is that there is a high percentage chance you have never heard this person preached about on a Sunday morning. Yeah, I know. Um, I would even say for some of us in this room, maybe you're a new Christian or maybe you're just getting kind of going on that regular Bible reading and, and spiritual personal growth to where you haven't even read this story yet and I'm excited to introduce you to it. It's about an individual that doesn't get much comment um, in, in kind of day-to-day Christian life. But let's, uh, let's break into this. This is exciting. So uh, the story actually starts, though, with a character many of us are familiar with. A guy by the name of David. King David. Uh, most of us have heard about King David, right? And David himself is a story of an underdog. We could probably go into King David's story. He started off as a shepherd in the fields. Um, being a shepherd was not a cool job at the time. Um, he was the youngest kid. He was the runt of the family. He was over, overlooked by people. As a matter of fact, Samuel, his job was to come and anoint the new king. He was sent to the house of Jesse, and he looked at all the other brothers and, and wanted them, but God was like, no, you're going to pick David. I know you're looking at the outward appearance, but everyone looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. David was an underdog. Um, but David's story, as you know, he goes to deliver some food to his brothers that were on the front lines of war. And while he's there, there's a guy named Goliath from Gath. He's a Philistine, and he's threatening Israel. He's calling out one-on-one combat to see who's going to determine the winner of the war or this battle. And, uh, and David goes out and kills Goliath. And he is a hero. He is a national hero. People are celebrating him. And he's brought into the house of Saul, basically. He's brought into the palace. And his job is to kind of chill Saul out when he's having a freakout session. Saul is the current king. Um, so David was anointed as a child to be future king. Problem was, there already was a king. His name was Saul. So he comes in and plays some rip and harp solos for King Saul to, uh, to kind of calm him down. Sings some of the psalms, perhaps he sang in the field. And, uh, and he spends time in the house of Saul. But the problem is, as David's there, he is growing in popularity. People are really excited about David. As a matter of fact, the ladies wrote him a song. And it goes, Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his tens of thousands. And that didn't make Saul feel very good. He kind of had a pretty sensitive uh, ego, his, his sense of self was a little bit fragile. And as most of us do when we feel a little bit threatened, he picked up a spear and tried to kill David with it. He tried to pin him against the wall. And so, so Saul is losing his mind about David. He's mad at him. And he's kind of got this, he, he's really nice to David. I'm going to kill you moments with David. And David realized, i got to get out of here. And so he escapes the palace. But before he fully goes on the lamb, goes on the run from King Saul, he has a clandestine meeting with someone named Jonathan. See, Jonathan was Saul's son. He was the prince. And while David was in the palace with Saul, serving Saul, he and Jonathan became incredibly close. They had a friendship that was incredibly close. And this friendship was deep. And Jonathan knew something was going to happen. Jonathan saw something in David. And, and so they have this secret meeting together before David fully goes on the run. So we're going to be, I apologize, normally we have the Bible app. I messed it up somehow. I don't know, I must have scheduled it for sometime in like 2032 or something like that. So in the year 2032, you can find the notes for this. It's going to be really good. But uh, otherwise, just jump to the book of 1 Samuel with us. We're going to start at the end of 1 Samuel, but it's going to jump into the book of 2 Samuel. This story crosses over, Okay. So 1 Samuel, starting in chapter 20, and verse 13, the second half of verse 13. So this is the meeting that 
that uh, Jonathan and David are having. They're hiding out, or David's hiding out in the field, and Jonathan comes up to him, and he says, we need to make a promise to each other. We need to make this oath to each other. And Jonathan says, may the Lord be with you as he used to be with my father. And may you treat me with the unfailing love of the Lord as long as I live. But if I die, treat my family with this faithful love even when the Lord destroys all of your enemies from the face of the earth. This is a massive moment. Jonathan is stating that he knows that there is a calling on David from God. That, he, that, that David has God's anointing to be the next leader. And this is big because he's realizing this means my dad is no longer going to be king. At some point, David's going to take over. It also means I am no, not going to ever be king. He's a prince. He's next in line to be king. But he has the self-awareness and the recognition that, that, that David was God's appointed one. He saw that God had a plan and David was going to be used. And what, what incredible self-awareness and humility to come to David and say, I recognize that this is going to end and you are going to be in power. So what I ask you is if I die, that you show kindness to my family. And so Jonathan makes David swear this oath and they make a covenant together. They make this pact of friendship and faithful love towards each other. And he says, David, even when your enemies are killed, show love to my family. And this is important. This is an important moment. Highlight that in your Bible. If you're using the WhatsApp, make a note or, or I mean not WhatsApp. <laughs> WhatsApp is texting between uh, my wife's family. What am I thinking of? Bible app. There we go. Um, my wife's family uses a WhatsApp. Okay. So in the Bible app, highlight that. This is an important moment. He says, make this pact. And so they make this pact and David goes on the run and Saul is in hot pursuit. He is hunting David down. He hates David. He's a threat to the king. He's a threat to the kingdom. He feels like, like all the popularity is there with David. So he has his full attention. And really Saul kind of turns into the mad king. He turns into a crazy person. He has these mood swings. He'll come and try to kill David and David will like be hiding in a cave. And, and David will have the opportunity to kill Saul. But David said, woe be it to me to raise my hand against the Lord's anointed. I'm not going to be the one that kills Saul. And so he, he spares Saul. He cuts off a piece of his robe. And in the morning he says, Saul, look, I could have killed you, but I, I spared you. And Saul's like, what am I thinking? I love you, David. Let's hang out. Let's barbecue. We got to hang out more. And, and then he's like, no, now I'm going to kill you. And he's got this back and forth going. But Saul is obsessed with David. Obsessed with him. To the point that it's to the neglect of what the country needs, and that's leadership. Leadership militarily especially, because when David killed Goliath, that was a victory in a battle, but the Philistines were not defeated. There was still a war going on, but all of Saul's attention was to capturing and killing David. And so all of his attention is going into killing David, but there is about to be a big turning point in the war that's going on between the Philistines, the sworn enemies of Israel, and the Israelites. And because Saul is so distracted... It's devastating. And it happens at a battle that's called the Battle of Gilboa. Everybody say, Gilboa. Oh, that was said with such intensity. Good. The Battle of Gilboa. This great battle occurs. So flip forward a few chapters to chapter 31. And it tells about what happens in this battle. So from, from, from where we were in chapter 20 up to this point, David's having this back and forth with Saul. He's on the run. And then this battle occurs in chapter 31 Verse 1, it says, Now the Philistines attacked Israel, and the men of Israel fled before them, and many were slaughtered on the slopes of Mount Gilboa. The Philistines closed in on Saul and his sons, and they killed three of his sons, Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malkishua. So there on this mountain, three of Saul's sons, including Jonathan, are killed. And Saul is also mortally wounded in this battle and ultimately himself dies. And the Israelites are overrun by the Philistines. They're overrun by the Philistines. The king is dead. The next in line of succession are also dead. The, the royal lineage is in danger. The, the Philistines have rushed past their front lines and the people in the kingdom are panicked. Here come the Philistines. The head has been cut off, cut off the leadership and, and there's no one to lead and, and they're, they're rushing in. 
And so something happens at the palace when this occurs. So now we're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 4. This, the book of Samuel kind of jumps around with events, and so we're going to be moving through chronologically, but that means in the Bible we're moving around a little bit. So 2 Samuel chapter 4, verse 4, tells what happens after that battle of Gilboa, the news gets back to Jerusalem. And here's what it says. Or to the palace, I should say. Saul's son Jonathan had a son named Mephibosheth, who was crippled as a child. He was five years old when the report came from Jezreel that Saul and Jonathan had been killed in battle. When the child's nurse heard the news, she picked him up and fled. But as she hurried away, she dropped him, and he became crippled. So the news of the battle gets to the palace. I shouldn't say that they were in uh, Jerusalem yet, the, the the capital wasn't in Jerusalem yet, but it gets to the palace, and the news hits, and they're like, we've got to get out of here. And so uh, Mephibosheth's nurse, Mephibosheth is the son of Jonathan, she scoops him up to run away, but she drops him, and his legs are broken. I don't know if either his legs are fractured, and with the technology and the medicine of the time, they didn't heal right and he couldn't walk, or perhaps he had a spinal injury, but he becomes crippled. He becomes paraplegic, and he, his legs no longer uh, are able to carry him, and sometimes... And so, so that's the end of his story. You read verse 4 and it just ends. That's kind of the end of Mephibosheth's story there. And it moves on in the rest of the story. Now sometimes we, uh, we, we think that, okay, Saul dies and this is where the story picks up with David becomes king and we move forward from there. David sets up a big kingdom and then the story of Bathsheba and everything forward. Did you know that it wasn't that smooth or easy right after Saul died? The transition of power was not nice and democratic as it's supposed to be in our society right now. It wasn't like, it wasn't like that there was this nice, easy, clean way that one dynasty came in and just stepped in for the next, for the other one. It was messy. It was really messy. Um, the Bible tells us that there was actually war that then occurred between the house of David and the house of Saul. So Saul dies. David inquires of God. He said, he's, I've spared Saul. I've obeyed you. Is this my time to take the throne as you have anointed me? And God says, do it. And so David goes and he's anointed, but he's anointed king of Judah. Not all of Israel, but just Judah. And then there's another guy that gets crowned king of Israel. And so there's this, comp- and he's, he, he lays claim to Saul's kingdom. And so there's this competition, there's this war that breaks out, and the Bible tells us it's a long war. It's a painful war. It's a difficult war. And, and you may recall what we read in 1 Samuel 31. It says that three of Saul's sons were killed on Mount Gilboa, but it doesn't say all of his sons were killed. So there was other family involved. There was other things. And so there was this, this war going on between these families about who was going to become king. So here's what it says in 2 Samuel chapter 3. Now we're going to jump ahead, or backwards, we were in chapter 4. Jump back one chapter to chapter 3. And here's what it says. That was the beginning of a long war between those who were loyal to Saul and those loyal to David. As time passed, David became stronger and stronger, while Saul's dynasty became weaker and weaker. So this transition from one monarchy to another was messy business. Because all of the royal line, the lineage, had to be eliminated. Because if there was someone left that had a connection to Saul, maybe they were a son or grandson or something like that, they could make claim to the throne and they could destabilize the new king's reign. To make a claim to the throne could get the people behind you and you could uh, perhaps overthrow the current king. And so it was normative of the time. This sounds so brutal, and it was. But it was normative to wipe out everyone. It was normative to go in and eliminate all claimants to the throne. Any potential rival was put to the sword. And so we're watching the end here of Saul's dynasty as he grows weaker and weaker. They are systematically being eradicated as David takes the throne. And time goes on, and David's throne becomes established. And David unifies Judah and Israel, and the, 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 the country is strong. As a matter of fact, the... Uh, they were at war with the Philistines. The Philistines had had that big win at Gilboa and all that. David defeated the Philistines, and not just a little bit. You remember where Goliath was from? He was Goliath of Gath, right? David took Gath. He took the whole city. He went in, took it over. The, the, he, he pushed the, the Philistines back. And with the Midianites, the Midianites were another enemy on the other side, on the east. He not only just pushed them back or took a town, he took the entire country of Midian. 
David is establishing his throne. He is firmly ensconced. He is king, and he is ruling over it all. And that's where our story really picks up here. So we are going to be in now in chapter 9 of 2 Samuel, and this is where we're going to stay the rest of the time. 2 Samuel chapter 9, and we're going to be going through this whole chapter. So David is king over it all. He has wiped out the house of Saul. He is ruling it, everything. And one day, the Bible says, David asked, is anyone in Saul's family still alive? If you were to just take that portion of the phrase, if you were just to take that section, you would think he's doing mop-up duty, right? He's going, who's left? Did we get them all? Let's, let's, let's just finish this up. Let's make sure that's no one left that could possibly make a claim. But, but the rest of this phrase changes everything. And here's what he says. He says, is there anyone to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? So he summoned a man named Ziba who had, who had been one of Saul's servants. Are you Ziba? The king asked. Yes, sir, I am, Ziba replied. The king then asked him, is anyone still alive from Saul's family? If so, I want to show God's kindness to them. So Ziba replied, yes. One of Jonathan's sons is still alive. He is crippled in both feet. Where is he, the king asked. In Lodabar, Ziba told him, at the home of Makir, son of Amiel. So Mephibosheth is a prince. He's living in a palace. His dad is in line to be king. He's got everything he could ever want. And in one day, in one instant, everything changes. His dad is killed. He's essentially turned into an orphan. He's dropped as a child. He's paralyzed. No longer can he walk. He's now handicapped. He's now on the run for his life because now his family is being systematically eradicated. They're being killed and he's going to have to go live underground. He's no longer living in a palace. Everything has changed. And Mephibosheth is an interesting story because his, his name, actually he wasn't named Mephibosheth by his dad. The Bible tells us later in the book of Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, that his dad didn't name him Mephibosheth. His dad named him Mir Baal. When Jonathan had him and held his son, he said, you are going to be mere ball, which means the opponent to Baal. It means, it means Baal, for those of you that aren't aware, Baal was an idol back in the day. Baal was a false, Baal was a false god, specifically of the Philistines, especially. It was this false god. And when Jonathan held him, he looked at his son and he said, here is the future I see for you. You're going to be a champion for the one true, true God. You're going to be against everything that's false. You're going to tear down idols. And we all dream for our children, don't we? I'm sure Jonathan looked at his son and had dreams for him. He said, you're going to pull down enemy strongholds. You are going to be a warrior for God. You are going to do incredible things. But yet, at some point in Mirabal's life, things changed. At the age of five, everything changed. And his name got changed. And this is my speculation. It might be true, it might not. I don't know. Why did his name change? When did it change? Well, he went into hiding, and so I think they changed his name as kind of like a witness protection program thing, right? When David's throne came into power, they're like, you are no longer Mirabal, we'll call you Mephibosheth. Name change. What's interesting is Mirabal means against Baal, against, against that idol, but Mephibosheth means out of the mouth of shame. Or from the source of shame. I wonder if they named him that after he was crippled and they just said, you're a shame. So he flees from this life of opulence and he now lives in a place called Lodabar. And Lodabar is in the back woods. Some of you guys like the country. This is country. This is, this is like, like where you go out and it's so dry and desolate. There are no wells to be dug. There is no farming to be done. It's not the fun kind of outdoors. This is rough outdoors. And he lives in this place called Lodabar. And Lodabar means, if you're taking notes, I want you to write this down because this is important. The definition of Lodabar is powerful. Lodabar is defined as the house of no bread. The house of no bread... See, to, an, to, to a Jewish person reading this, to an Israelite, as they read the story, this would make sense because they know what Lodabar means. We don't speak Hebrew, most of us in this room, so we wouldn't get it. But in, when they read the story, they say, and they found him in the place with no bread. 
That just would automatically be understood. So he's living in this place that's in the backwoods, the wilderness, in this place that's called the house of no bread. And not only that, but he's living in a home that's not even his own. He's living in a home that belongs to a guy named Makir. So he's, he's, he, imagine this moment, if you will, here, as we read ahead. But Mephibosheth is living in this wilderness spot. He's living with so much less than he had before. And then David sends for him. In verse 5 it says, So David sent for him and brought him from Makir's home. Imagine this. Imagine that you... He's probably lying there. He's crippled. He's lying there. And soldiers and an emissary come. And they say, King David was hunting for this man. And he wants him to come to the capital. I think for Mephibosheth, he thought, this is it. I've been found. I've been on the run. I've been trying to survive. I'm, I'm, I'm as far as I can go. There's nowhere else to run. My legs betray me. I can't even physically run. This is it. Imagine the fear that was coursing through him. No matter if, if the, the group of people tried to say, no, it's going to be all right, whatever, just knowing the king has called for me and I know what's happened to every other relative. This person is at the door. And he recognizes that the very blood that's in my veins betrays me. I have the blood of Saul in my veins. I'm in line to the throne. And the very blood in my veins has made me the enemy of David. Continuing on in verse 6, it says, His name was Mephibosheth, and he was Jonathan's son and Saul's grandson. And when he came to David, he bowed low to the ground in deep respect. David said, Greetings, Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth replied, I am your servant. Don't be afraid, David said. We can see here the fear Mephibosheth felt standing before the king, knowing this is it. This is the moment. He just says the word, and I'm done. And King David says, Don't be afraid, Mephibosheth. I intend to show kindness to you because of my promise to your father, Jonathan. I will give you all the property that once belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will eat here with me at the king's table. And Mephibosheth bowed respectfully and exclaimed, Who is your servant that you should show such kindness to a dead dog like me? Let me just say that dogs weren't viewed the same way they are in our culture. I think the U.S. is a very unique place in terms of how we treat our dogs. Dogs are really just another member of the family, right? I've seen the way some of you guys treat your dogs. It's ridiculous. Some of you take your dogs to the groomer more often than I get a haircut. Um... There are, there are doggy spas. That I've seen, there are dog therapists. What's that? We put our dog on like, you can put your dog on like stuff that makes it not depressed and all kinds of different things. We treat our dogs like, 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 like family members. But I have traveled to different corners of the world. And in many of the places I've gone, they have probably what would be viewed as a little more close to how they viewed dogs in the ancient Near East. At best, dogs are seen as insignificant. They just kind of exist in parallel to you. They kind of just eat the scraps. They, they walk around. They're, they're varmints. They're varmints. They're just an annoyance. They're, recall, I'm sure when, when, when Mephibosheth said this to David, I'm just a dead dog to you, I'm sure David's mind snapped back to the insult Goliath made to him when he faced him that day years before. When Goliath looked at David and said, Am I a dog? That you come to me with a stick? To be a dog was low. To be a dog was low. As a matter of fact, even earlier in this story, David was being chased by Saul, and David said, I'm just a dog to you. I'm even smaller than a dog. I'm a flea on a dog. To be a dog was an incredibly low moment. The lowest you could get would be a dead dog. That's even lower. And Mephibosheth says, what do you want with a dead dog like me? But then the king summoned Saul's servant Ziba. And he said, I've given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. David restored everything to Mephibosheth that had belonged to Saul. Saul was king. I think he owned a lot of stuff. He restored everything that a king had had and his family back to Mephibosheth. He says, you and your sons, he's talking to Ziba now, 
You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him, to produce food for your master's household. He has servants now that are employed to work the land. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, will eat here at my table. Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. So Ziba replied, Yes, my lord the king, I am your servant, and I will do all that you have commanded. And from that time on, Mephibosheth ate regularly at David's table, like one of the king's own sons. Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah, and from then on, all of the members of Ziba's household were Mephibosheth's servants. And Mephibosheth, who was crippled in both feet, lived in Jerusalem and ate regularly at the king's table. Wow. What a story. Mephibosheth... For how many years? He was crippled at five. He went on the run and he lived to the point that he had a child. It says he had a son named Micah. So he lived for many, many years under the fear and under the knowledge that he was under a wrath. But it was a wrath that he didn't actually have to live under. He lived in the desert in another man's home under fear of wrath that he didn't have to live under. The blood in Mephibosheth's veins did condemn him. That's true. He was of Saul's lineage. By the rule of the land, by what was expected, David was completely justified towards having him executed. David was completely justified in condemning him because of the blood in his veins. But let me tell you, the blood of Jonathan was more powerful than the blood of Saul. The wrath of God should be burning against you and I today. The wrath of God is just to burn against us. We have the blood of our father, Adam, in our veins. Our father, Adam, sinned against God. Uh, The book of Romans chapter 5 says that sin came into the world through one man. That was Adam. And through that sin, it spread to everyone because everyone sins. Each one of us has a curse upon us. The blood in our veins betrays us before God. It is that usurping uh, uh, approach that, 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 uh, that Adam held. We hold it ourselves. But just as the covenant with Saul's son Jonathan overpowered the wrath that was due him. There was a covenant between David and, and Jonathan that overpowered the wrath that was due for Mephibosheth. In the same way... The covenant that was established through Jesus overpowers the wrath that is due us. There is a wrath that is due us, but, but it's overcome by the power of Jesus, by the blood of Jesus. And it's not anything that we could do ourselves. It's not through our own do-goodedness. It's not through trying to be just a really good person. But in, in, in the same way, Mephibosheth couldn't have done enough to earn his life. But rather, it was all because of the work done by his father and the covenant that was created. And in the same way, church, in the same way, through Jesus' death, we have that life once and for all. We have that mercy once and for all. Jesus died, and when he was on that cross, he said, It is finished. Once and for all. Your sin has been taken away. Washed away. It's finished. It's finished. It's gone. Through Jesus' mercy, it has been extended to us. See, Mephibosheth was living out of this place called Lodabar. And Lodabar means house with no bread. Remember, I had you write that down. House of no bread. But he was brought to the king's table. Can you imagine the foods at that table? A king's table. He was brought to the king's table, but there's something that's interesting too between this contrast of Lodabar, because Lodabar, house of no bread, do you know where David's hometown was? What was it called? Anyone? Bethlehem. Where's Jesus from? Bethlehem. Do you know the definition of Bethlehem? The house of of bread. He came from the house with no bread, the house of no bread. And here David, this this symbol of Christ in the Old Testament, he 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 brings him into the house of bread. Can I tell you that Jesus said, "I am the bread of life." We are bread carriers. We can call people to the to the table of the king, invite them in. And and this is just a marvelous expression. We have been invited in. Mephibosheth has everything restored. He has a place of belonging. 
Look at what it says in verse 11. Look back there. It says that he was treated as one of David's own sons. He wasn't one of the unwanted stepkids. He wasn't like a scrap catcher. He wasn't like a dog at the edge of the table, but he was treated like an actual son. And in 1 John 3, 1, it tells us that God calls us his own children. We've been adopted in, grafted into the family of God. This is the audacity of God's grace. Enemies of God. The blood in our veins betrayed us, but yet he invites us in. And today, you're invited to the king's table. You see, Mephibosheth's story is our story. Each one of us in this room at some point have been lost or broken. Every last one of us have been broken and we can't fix ourselves. We've been enemies of God and no amount of being a good person can justify or rectify the relationship with God and yet through it, through an incredible act of grace, through what Jesus did on the cross, we are invited in to the king's table and he invites us to relationship with him. So at this moment, before we move forward in the service, uh, here's what I want us to do. I want us to bow our heads and close our eyes. And I want to give you this opportunity. I think there's many in this room that have been living in Lodabar because you're afraid of God. You're afraid of His wrath. You know you've sinned. You've done things in your life that you know would separate and bring upon the wrath of God upon your life. And you've been living in the desert in this place of no bread. And right now, can I invite you to the table of the king? Because he says, there was a covenant made with my son that your sin... The blood in your veins that betrays you is washed over by the blood of one that is greater. The blood of Jesus washed it away and he gives you a new life and a new hope and you can have a relationship with God. Not a fear of God, not something that says God's after me, but rather God wants to know me and he invites me in to know me as one of his own children. And right now, he invites you in to the table of the king and I invite you to know this God in this way. So if you've been living in the land of Lodabar, separated from God, and you want to have a restored relationship with Jesus, if that's you with our heads bowed and eyes closed right now, I want you to raise your hand and I want to pray with you. Raise it high. I want to pray with you. Yeah. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Right now, church, I want us to pray together with one voice. Say, Dear Jesus, Say, dear Jesus, thank you for coming after me. While I was lost in the desert, you sought me out. In my sin, in my brokenness, you pursued me so that I could have life. I invite you into my heart, Lord Jesus. Be my King and my God. I want to know you. Thank you for loving me. And thank you for forgiving me. You are my God. Amen. Amen. I celebrate with you if you decided to make that prayer your prayer this morning. And if you raised your hand or maybe you intended to raise your hand or you're still considering it, can I invite you to mark your connection card. In the seat backs in front of you, there are connection cards. You can also go to nlcchurch.com slash connect. There's our digital connection card. Let us know that you made that decision. This is personal, but I want you to know that it's nothing to be embarrassed about. 
the fact that most of us in this room didn't raise our hands means that we're already on that journey. So you're just joining us on the journey. We are celebrating with you. It's not a thing of shame. It's a thing of joy that you enter into the kingdom of heaven with us, that you get to move forward and to celebrate eternity guaranteed in the presence of Jesus. That's something to celebrate. So there's no shame. What we want to do is, if you will let us know on that connection card, is to help you on your next steps in following Jesus. Because following Jesus is a, is a journey. It's not just a momentary decision. Now it's a decision to follow Jesus and we want to get those things in your hands on how to follow Jesus and how to do it best and to make sure that we are alongside you in this journey. So let us know on that connection card in a few minutes. Drop it in the offering plate. We will be connecting with you on how to follow Jesus. So before we dismiss today, I want to say this. Like Mephibosheth, at some point, we all needed someone to bring us to the table. Mephibosheth was crippled. He was a paraplegic. He lit, he, Lodabar was far from where the capital was. Someone had to carry him to the king. Someone had to carry him to the table of the king. And someone brought him to that moment. Each one of us, if we're following Jesus, unless we had like a light from heaven, kind of Paul uh, on, the, on the road to Damascus moment, someone influenced us and led us to Jesus. Right? I'm sure each one of us can think back to a person that had influence in our life that led us to Jesus. We all need someone to bring us to the table of the King. And our calling as followers of Jesus is to be bringers of the good news. We are called to bring the gospel. Gospel means good news. If you have good news, you have to share the good news. We're compelled to. We've got to share the good news that we've got. Freedom and mercy have been extended. You don't have to live in this place anymore. There's a new place for you. Yesterday was the official first recognition federally of Juneteenth. Juneteenth commemorates when the Emancipation Proclamation went out and slaves were freed from slavery, officially. And uh, we celebrate with those that, that celebrate this, what, a, what an amazing time in our country's history that we walk away from such shame. My wife told me, she was reading about it, and she was telling me about it yesterday. She said, did you know that there are parts of the South where the slaves didn't know about the Emancipation Proclamation for two years? They lived in slavery, despite the fact they had been freed, because no one told them. People were holding back the good news. People were withholding the fact they wanted to keep them for themselves. They they didn't want the good news to get out. And so these people lived in slavery. Can I tell you, we are compelled to go bring the good news. Can you imagine living as a slave for two years and you could have legally just walked away? And there are people spiritually living in bondage and in darkness and they have been set free and someone needs to tell them the good news, church. Church, someone needs to tell them the good news. That is our mission. That is our call. That is what compels us to share. And so that is for why for this reason our church is embarking on a journey, on a mission over the next three months. This summer our church is moving towards a common objective together. Several weeks ago we had our Vision Sunday meeting. And we laid out before you what God has put on our hearts as leaders. And it's big and it's audacious and something we've never done before. But it's a mission that we're taking on as a church body. First, second, first service, second service, small groups. We are engaging and embarking on this together. I want you to watch this video with me to see what we're talking about. This year, we are not going to be calling it Vacation Bible School. The reality is, 
community, they don't even know what Vacation Bible School is. So this year, we're going to be calling it Wonder Camp, an amazing opportunity for our community to learn about Jesus and the wonder of who God is. excited for what this is going to be. We're calling it Wonder Camp, not Vacation Bible School. For years, it's been called Vacation Bible School, and the reason we're calling it Wonder Camp is that people outside of church culture don't know what Vacation Bible School is. That sounds like seminary. But Wonder Camp, that's accessible. That sounds interesting. And we're not going to hide the fact that we're going to tell about Jesus and we're going to do fun experiments out there and we're going to have music, we're going to have a stage. There's going to be an illusionist that comes one night. We're going to be giving away big things. Our church is going to financially invest costly investment into this endeavor so that the community knows we truly do care. We're going to give away bikes. We're going to make this an event where the community sees we love them. And we're here to bring the good news of Jesus. But it's something that happens when the entire church comes together and says, this is our mission. It's not the paid leadership or staff's uh, mission. It's not, it's not the kids' ministry team and the people that are really committed, uh, their mission. But our church mission as a whole is to reach our community. And it starts here. And you say, why kids? Why do we start with VBS? Well, I would say first and foremost, because kids matter to God. In each of the synoptic gospels, there's three synoptic gospels, and each one of them twice, Jesus talks about how the kingdom of heaven belongs to children. He says, the disciples are arguing over who's greatest in the kingdom, and Jesus says, unless you enter the kingdom like one of these children, 
The kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. And then, and then at a separate time, they're at the Sermon on the Mountain. Parents are bringing their children to be blessed, and Jesus is blessing them. And they're trying to shoo them away. Little scamps, get out of here. And Jesus says, whoa, what are you doing? Stop. The kingdom of heaven, again, he says, belongs to such as these. Children matter to God. And did you know that as of the 2010 census, it reports that a quarter of our population are 18 and under? quarter of our population and two-thirds of those are age 11 or under so the, the massive percentage of our population are children and children are most receptive to the gospel or people are most receptive to the gospel as a child there's something about childlike faith that just says i receive you and so so we're going to walk the neighborhoods church and pray in the months to come we're going to be setting up schedules where we say I'm going to be on a prayer team and I'm going to walk these streets and just casually walk it. We're not talking about creepy pray over the neighborhood. We don't want to scare them beforehand, right? I'm not saying stand before each house and go, "Oh God," you know. <laughs> we'll just say we're well, from another church. We don't know who these people are. <laughs> but walk the walk the community just praying under our breath, "Lord, I pray that you would reach these people." I pray that this would be a powerful outreach. Then we are going to go door to door with flyers that are professionally made, that are quality, that invite students to come, these children to come to Wonder Camp and their families. Come to Wonder Camp. We're going to have a great time. There's going to be food. There's going to be events. And we're going to pour into them. We're going to have team rallies to set this up. We, we are going to do this well. We're going to do it right. We aren't going to give you a t-shirt and be like, good luck, get out there, just kind of pour into some children. We are going to prepare you. We're going to have training. We're going to have rallies. We're going to go out and do this well. We are going to be a, a unified body. There's going to, um, we're going to, like I said, financially invest. We're going to have equipment that we're going to be getting. We're going to let our community see excellence because we want them to know that they matter. And then to end the whole thing, when it's all said and done, we're going to come together on a Sunday morning and we're going to have a celebration Sunday where we're going to give away the big prize. We're going to invite families to come because this is where the big prize is given away. But we're going to preach the gospel to the whole family, invite them into community here at New Life Church, connect our church to community through these different ways. This is the first step that we're taking in reaching our community proactively. Not just existing in parallel with what's going on outside our walls, but reaching out. Reaching out, church. And then on September 3rd, that's the Friday after, we're going to have a celebration party. We're going to go to the lake. We're going to have boats. We're going to just have everyone that served. We're going to have a big party and celebrate what God has done. And that's going to be super fun because the lake is fun. So here's what's going to happen. We've got these incredibly handsome ushers right here. Thanks for looking so sharp, guys. And they're going to be handing out these flyers right here or these sign-up sheets. And here's what I want you to do. Go ahead and hand them out, guys. You'll see on here there's a list of positions that we are filling. And I want every person in this room to get one. Not just one per row or one per family. Each person. Mine. This is mine. Look at your spouse or whoever's sitting next to you and say, this one's mine. All right? No, mine. This is for you. I want you to fill it out. And in a few minutes, we're going to drop it in the offering. Sign up for a position because, like I said, this is going to take the whole church. We are estimating it's going to take no fewer than 60 volunteers to make this work well. 60 people to step up and I'm ready to serve. And here's the deal. Here's the deal. Say yes now. Don't say yes maybe down the road. Say yes now. I joked in the first service about how, uh, have you ever run into someone that you're kind of familiar with? You guys go back and you're like, we really need to gather, get together. We should do that. We need to get together. And do you ever get together? No, that's just lip service. You're like, we'll never see each other. Right now, say yes. Say yes now, and down as we get closer to August, as we look at your schedule, as you see as things kind of fill out, if it changes, if something changes and you can't do it, let us know, that's fine. But we want to get you in the connect, communication loop. You are not signing a contract, okay? This is not something where we'll send our lawyers after you and said, well, you said that you would serve snacks, and so help us, you're going to serve snacks. Okay, this is going to be something where you sign up now, and, 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 and we will communicate with you, and if it doesn't work out, that's fine. We'll, 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 God bless you as you, you know, if you have vacation or whatever else, but say yes now. Find a position. Second thing is this. Sign up for more than one if they don't conflict because um, some positions might not be available. Some we only need a few people on a team, so it might fill up and we need you somewhere else. We ask that you be flexible. We'll try to put you where you feel your strengths are. We'll try to put you where you feel your strengths are. And some teams are bigger, some teams are smaller. 
Um, some teams can serve multiple things. Like you could be on an invite team or someone that does prayer walks and still serve at the actual event. So take that into consideration. So I would say this. Over-communicate on the form. Check more than one box. Write your favorites down. Say, I could also do this or I can't do this. But over-communicate on that form. Fill it out. And in just a few minutes, we'll drop in the offering. But I look for everyone to fill this out. I want to hand Donnie a stack of these, these things to say people are signing up. And I'm going to be like, I hope you can find places to put people. Because we had 100 people sign up on Sunday. I'm ready for this church to step up and say, this isn't for the kids' ministry. This isn't for the paid staff. This isn't for the VBS team that normally does it. This is for me. Because if not me, then who? Let's be the people that go to Lodabar and get Mephibosheth and bring him to the king's table this morning. Amen, church? Amen, church? Thank you, Father, that we are a part of this, Lord. We thank you, Father, that we get to be a part of bringing the good news to our world. And right now, God, let it be stirred up in our soul. Not an emotional plea, but literally, viscerally, we would be called to our world and we could not stand by and watch it go to hell without bringing it the good news of Jesus. So right now, Father, I pray that we would be stirred up. Call us out. Draw us forward, Lord, I pray. Let us see something awesome happen. Amen. Right now, ushers, if you'll prepare yourselves, we're going to receive our morning tithes and offerings. I'm not even talking much about our tithes and offerings, so because, church, you know how to be faithful. You give. Thank you for giving. You can give at nlcchurch.com slash give. You can drop it in the offering. But I felt my, my priority this morning was to tell you about our mission as a church, where we are going with these next months, what we are striving for, moving towards seeing God do. So let's drop that in. Drop your connection card in the offering. Let's give with joy. And let's go this, this week being God's ambassadors, Christ's ambassadors, bringers of good news to our world. Amen? Amen. Father, I pray over your church. Lord, I pray that you would expand our horizons where we put limits on what you can do through us. God, I pray that you would explode it. Just make it so much bigger. Use us in ways we never thought could happen before. Open doors where we didn't see them before. Let us be your hands and feet in our world, we pray, Jesus. Thank you for what you're doing and what you're going to do this summer. We pray for a harvest that's beyond anything we could imagine. We love you, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's give with joy this morning. Church, stand up to your feet one more time. We're going to sing a worship song as we end our time together. What a morning. What a vision that has been cast for us. What a mission we are being sent on. Amen. Father's